welcome to another episode of Cybersecurity One-on-One with Larry and Joe. Today, we have a very special guest on the show. It's actually one of our first uh, from the academic world. Uh, so Dr. Bunton has a, a background uh, in research, and he's currently an assistant professor at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. He's earned his PhD from the University of Maryland and has done postdoc studies at NYU. Uh, He currently studies how people engage politically online, uh, especially during uh, disasters, uh, times of social unrest, uh, how coordinating actors behave and information flows across multiple platforms. He's an expert in crisis informatics, online political engagement, disinformation, information quality, social media, real-time summarization, weak supervision, text mining, and machine learning. Uh, Today, I'm really excited to get his take on uh, uh, information warfare, cyber warfare, and uh, cyber safety. Uh, So we'll be diving into that topic. Hi, Dr. Buntain. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. How's it going? Hey, doing well, doing well. But uh, Larry, we've got a couple of uh, very practical questions uh, for Dr. Buntain. We'd love his take on some of the topics you and I have really been talking on the show for uh, for the past 18 months now, right? Yeah, it's been 18 months, so it's been great. Uh, yeah, just, um, just I just have one question. How does someone that's new to cybersecurity actually get in the field? What is, what is your suggestion? So this is a great question. I think there's a number of different paths for this, depending on what your background is. Uh, if you already have a background in computers or information technology, then I think you could do well going into one of these uh, cybersecurity master's programs or a cybersecurity undergraduate program to get access to and learn about the technology. Uh, if you don't have the background in, in IT or you haven't spent a lot of time working with computers, uh, then maybe the first thing to do would be to explore some of these cybersecurity boot camps to get your feet wet, sort of explore what the space is like, the kind of problems there are. Um, I think those are, are two good good ways to get into it. Okay, that's awesome. That's awesome. So new person like me. So right now, um, uh, I'm I'm in. Uh, I go to uh, cyber well cybersecurity school. I'm studying to be an ethical hacker. Right and, and for me to get into the field because I have no experience, it's like it doesn't really happen. Yeah, absolutely, Larry. This Larry Joe, this is a great a great set of questions, and it is a it is a set of questions that I do not believe are specific to cybersecurity. I think they come up in cyber safety. They come up in in how we deal with technology, sort of in general. Uh, I think probably the best advice I would give. So prior to being in academia, uh, I worked for a small defense contractor, and we built cybersecurity software for anti-tamper, basically software that would protect weapon systems when they would be sold abroad. And the best way that we found to recruit and then the interviews that we would provide our prospective uh, employees would basically test their skills on toy problems that we could give them. And the best students or the best employee, uh, prospective employees we found were people who had taken some of these exercises essentially home with them and sort of tried to build their own uh, test environments where they could uh, explore or try out some of these um, techniques, buffer overflows, or uh, uh, trying to embed malware into software and then explore 
like do their own sort of penetration testing on their own network or on the own, their own virtual machine, uh, or just play around with it at home so they could get that familiarity. And it's difficult to teach that. It's difficult to like get you into a program that helps you uh, play on your own time. And we're super, we're all super time constrained. Uh, but I think this issue of the mismatch between like what people are, are being taught or the kinds of, of skills they come out with versus what companies want. We see this as well. I work with a social media company who really wants to work with academics in helping us understand how uh, these programs are used and potentially abused to influence people. But it's very hard for them to find somebody who has the technical skill set to understand the, the uh, actual platform and the technology they use and the social understanding about how people use the technology, oftentimes that you, you don't find the, the person that has both of those skills, uh, which is I think a core, a core need for cybersecurity now, especially when we talk about what are the vulnerabilities in cybersecurity, and a lot of that vulnerability happens to be the person behind the, the mm -hmm. computer. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that really answers your question, Larry, but, but hopefully <laughs> that gives you some insight about you know, playing in the, on projects at home and, and then you can show your prospective employer, you know, I have a portfolio of things that I've done. Uh, I don't have, I may not have the certification that you've asked for, but I can walk through how you might uh, deploy one of these exploits and then how you might defend it or how somebody in your, in your particular company may be at risk for influence or phishing attacks like right now. Dr. Bunton, you raised a lot of lot of really good points there one of the first things you talked about was you know when you were in the private sector and you were interviewing you gave candidates uh who didn't maybe didn't have a lot of uh prior experience you gave them challenges to work on they'd go home and that kind of gave you a lot of opportunity to evaluate can candidates kind of apples to apples right and so right. so that's that's really where employers can take the risk or take the challenges, not sort of require so many years of experience, but take a take a risk on a candidate and give them challenges that can allow them to, uh, you know, uh, prove their proficiency of handling a task. But that's really outside of a job candidate's control, right? right? I mean, that's sort of like they need to find the employers who are willing to take that risk. I mean, there's there's so many candidates like Larry that that have actually gone through all the tech training and everything, and they would love to find an employer who would just give them that shot. I, I we right. had we had one candidate, Daniel, on our on our show last time, and uh, it, he had more uh, technical training than most people I know, and I've been in the field for like 20 years. I mean, it was incredible the amount of effort this candidate went into, and he couldn't find an employer who was willing to kind of give him that shot. So, um, yeah, so it does sound like it's it this, this problem from what I'm learning here from you, doctor, is that it really needs to start with the employers to take the risk because until they move, until they budge, they're not gonna get the help from all these talented people in the field. Would you say that's that's about right? I think that's definitely true. I mean, there is a lot of a lot of things that are outside the control of the prospective employee. And even in this case of coding challenges, uh, this like the idea of the coding challenge has been abused over the years. So we approached this from the perspective of we're going to give you an extremely hard problem. We don't care whether you solve the problem. We want to understand what your thought process is on how you might get to a solution or what things you might try. Because one of the questions that we would often ask them when they came in was here on our table is a Cisco, um, a Cisco 
conference phone that has some embedded software in it or firmware, what would you do to exploit this, this device? Or how would you exploit this projector or some, something like that? And we have no expectation that these people would know that. It's just, well, how would they go through that process? And a lot of companies now de deal with these really rigorous coding challenges. You have books about surviving the coding challenge, these kinds of things. And I don't think those are useful. Uh, but you can't change how the, the company is going to give you a coding challenge or what they're going to do. Right. Uh, I would posit the company that's trying to just check a number of boxes about do you have certification X, Y, and Z mm -hmm. uh, is probably a company that's going to be attacked in the near future and <laughs> not do well in that attack anyway. That's uh, a great point. So so basically, as a candidate, you know, you also have the power to choose which company you work for, right? And so the right. point you're raising there is that if people aren't asking the right questions or if they're, if, if they're using that kind of old methodology of hiring candidates, that may reveal a larger issue of how they approach the problem of cybersecurity security as well. That, that's brilliant. Uh, I do think it's crucial to be able to practice. Uh, and we're talking about practice, right? So practice in any sort of field is going to be the thing that's going to help you. Uh, and a friend of mine, she used to work in Las Vegas, and she ran, uh, she ran a nonprofit that would provide like 18 weeks of intensive training for your first sec uh, security cert certification. And basically, she come in to a particular place or school with a bunch of computers and they'd go from like teardowns to rebuilds all the way into let's explore test some of these uh security issues but any way that you can get practice i think will be super helpful whether you do it at home on your laptop you can try and do it at a school or you can do it on aws and get familiar with that kind of technology as well anything that lets you get your hands uh on some technology, on something that you can explore and test. And then you can talk about that in your interview. I think that's going to be uh, one of the most helpful things you can do. You know what's crazy? So in saying that, I met a, a guy last night. He's a Cowboys fan. Yay. But uh, no, so actually he has a nonprofit, which is called Cheap Charlie, where they help uh, immigrants uh, get into... I think they start off with the basics with A plus and, and all that, but he helps them get into the IT field in that way. So I think there's immigrants that comes from, from Asia mm -hmm. and they're doing it out of Oakland, which is which is awesome. So I told him that I'll give a shout out to him, uh, hey geezer. Um, <laughs> and it's 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 uh Cheap Charlie, that's the name of the school. So Okay. And I think that's something that maybe we should explore. I think so. Too, maybe get into the maybe go you know I, get, get back to the inner cities or something like that i'm definitely down for that there's a couple other topics i want to make sure we have time to get to and and uh i think one of the most interesting one is you know really this weak link in security today right i mean you could have all the tech in the world um and you know a couple of years ago if we could just kind of separate our sense of information build rings of defense around it you know that might be enough uh, that that might be how we protect an organization's data uh, but people are still the weak link today right oftentimes the weakest link of the chain is the person and you could have any the most sophisticated kinds of things that you want to have uh, but i think the biggest vulnerability remains the person sitting behind the keyboard and we see this all the way from you know phishing attacks that just convince people to click on shady links 
but maybe you can't expect better than that from you know your random person, your random grandparent who hasn't been using computers or is not proficient with computers, didn't grow up with them. Maybe you can expect that. Uh, but this even applies in really secure environments. So even if you do like you drop a USB thumb drive on the ground outside of a DoD facility or outside of a Iranian nuclear facility, there's a pretty good likelihood someone's going to pick it up and plug it into their computer regardless of what the policy is or what the security situation is. How can information warfare and cybersecurity information warfare, how can that field, how is it advancing today and, and what what can the private industry uh, hope to expect? Well, nicely, I think that recent move in the research area for cybersecurity and secure and trustworthy computing is moving from a cybersecurity question more towards a cyber safety question, trying to address this larger sphere of, yes, there's a huge amount of technical issue and technical problem that we need to address. Zero day attacks are a thing. All kinds of, of vulnerabilities need to be addressed that exist at the software level. But the safety aspect as well lets us address the human aspect. How do we help people become better uh, more secure users on the internet, uh, safer, uh, safer users of, of information technology systems. Wh whether it be, it's not, a, it's not a question of policy, but it's a question of better habits, uh, like secure or having password managers that help you use different passwords in different places, uh, where you go, how you pay attention to locks on screens and Perfect. Uh, assess these kinds of, of risks about what links are you clicking on, how are you evaluating emails, these kinds of questions. Companies today are spending more than ever on cybersecurity and they're still getting hacked. It doesn't really seem like a technical problem here. Right. It seems like it's really a people issue. People are really the weak link still. Um, tell us a little bit about the difference between cybersecurity and cyber safety and a little bit of your uh, research and, and uh, what you're doing to help solve the problem. Yeah, so uh, this idea of cyber safety as we move more or we move away or become more encompassing of this idea of, well, we don't want to just protect the system. It's not just about protecting the hardware, not just protecting the, the data. It's also protecting the user in some way so the user can experience a safer uh, online space. And actually, there's a really good connection between this question about cyber safety and this question about uh, the digital divide or the digital gap. A friend of mine who does research in this area found for her dissertation work that people from lower socioeconomic status backgrounds uh, do not have access, not just to the technology, but to the advice about how to use the technology. What are good password uh, management practices? What are good passwords? Where do you go if your computer is broken and you don't have a lot of resources or you come from a poor neighborhood? Uh, well, you're, you can't go to like, if you work at some low income job, so say you work at McDonald's, you can't go to the McDonald's IT department and be like, hey, I had this question about my, my home computer, there, that doesn't happen. Whereas if you work a blue collar or a white collar job rather, maybe you have some relationship with the local IT person in your office and you could go ask them some questions. So there's a huge divide there. So people who don't have access to resources are already intrinsically more at risk because they don't know or don't have access to information about uh, good practices or who they should trust what happens when their computer is uh, hacked or something like that. So this cyber safety issue is supposed to bring that in as well. How can we make people better citizens of, of the net? So where you have things like botnets that rely on being able to exploit some random person's machine to make the botnet bigger, 
you know, this helps everybody. The rising tide rises, uh, raises all, all ships, right? We want to make everybody safer, which adds a whole additional aspect uh, to the cyber problem than just, you know, building better firewalls, you know, plugging uh, zero-day vulnerabilities. I have a question. Uh, so does the, um, the private sector, do they really take cybersecurity serious? Well, I think, it's a, I think there's a lot of incentive questions here. Core infrastructure systems, who you would expect to have a lot of, inc of incentive to do this, generally don't have the resources to do it. They don't have the resources to upgrade. So, I mean, you can, it, it would not be uncommon for you to find some power system somewhere in America that runs on a Windows XP machine uh, that was originally built to be air-gapped, but then somebody uh, plugged it into a, to a, a modem somewhere so they could you know, get to it from home or from some other place they were at, and now there's some massive vulnerability that was never supposed to be there. Uh, so I think there's a resource problem. And then the, from the private sector, there's an incentive problem about, well, what really happens when you are subject to a breach? Uh, so you see this with like Equifax, they got sued and they had a sizable uh, class action suit against them. But you know, how much money did they really lose as part of that? Uh, this is a totally random anecdote, but I was sitting in a barbershop outside of DC a couple of years ago getting my hair cut and there was a guy two, uh, two seats down from me on the phone. Clearly he worked for some credit card company and he was basically making the case about why they shouldn't even tell their customers that a breach had occurred because he said it was easier and cheaper for them as a company to cover the cost of people's credit card, uh, uh, be people being victims of credit card fraud than it was to suffer the bad publicity of, of announcing the breach and then covering uh, identity theft protection for all of their their that's right, uh, doctor customers. That's exactly right. So what's happening right now? There's a lot of discussion in Congress on mandatory breach notifications that actually make it necessary, for, especially for national infrastructure, to make it required um, if they're compromised. So you know, Colonial Pipeline is a good example of this. You know, not, you know, clearly there's national security dependencies on you know oil pipeline. There's no doubt about that right? right but uh you actually you touched on something that i've act actually observed directly which is that an organization that has cybersecurity insurance with a ten thousand dollar premium they're just going to pay the premium the ten thousand dollar payment if they get hacked they're not going to really spend the money on cybersecurity budget why spend a million dollars defending your systems if you just have a ten thousand dollar you know uh, premium if you get compromised and so Right. Uh, it gets back to, I think you're 100% correct. I agree with you. I think it is the incentive, you know, the motivation, the government, like you said, needs to protect citizens and, um, you know, against espionage. They can't hide behind a, a uh, an insurance policy like private uh, companies can. Right. And uh, now that is beginning to change. My clients are telling me now, Dr. Button, that the uh, insurance carriers are now raising the requirements uh, you now have to have multi-factor authentication and they're basically requiring pretty steep things that uh, private industry now has to invest in in order to get covered. So that's beginning to change because obviously these insurers are starting to lose a lot of money. Yeah. Um, I did have an interesting uh, thing. I want to switch topics a little bit. Tesla was targeted by a overseas foreign actor who actually physically came to visit a tesla employee and basically uh bribe them 
with a, I believe it was a million dollar payment that said, if you implant ransomware into the Tesla network, we'll give you a million dollars. Now, fortunately for Tesla, this brave individual had the courage of not only reporting it, but cooperating with law enforcement to, you know, uh, bring this uh, this uh, group to justice. And I believe it's actually in courts or it was as recently as a few months ago. The point being here, cyber safety for private and even government now probably needs to look at the fact that these foreign actors that are have the potential, like in the case of uh, Colonial Pipeline, of earning million-dollar ransom payments, they can actually afford as a cost of service to actually bribe employees to do the work for them. They don't even have to hack through a firewall. They don't even have to, to work on a phishing campaign. If they can actually just find an employee who is financially vulnerable and willing to, uh, even a shop for employee making minimum wage, um, can implant uh, malware and take down, um, you know, probably Tesla. Uh, probably yeah. could have happened. So, um, how how does cyber safety address the vulnerability of the employee who is actually susceptible to a bribe? <laughs> so this is this is a a, a really interesting question. Uh, I would say maybe it's a little bit outside the bounds of cyber safety because now you assume that there is a, a malevolent insider. And the, the malicious insider problem is a significant problem that's been around for decades, even from uh, like the Boeings of the world who wanted to make sure that, that the Soviet Union wasn't stealing our, our technology. Turns out they were, and they were totally infiltrated, infiltrated and we learned that after the fall of the, of the Iron Curtain. So yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really hard problem. There's been work to try and understand what are like anomalous behaviors, what are people trying to uh, do to basically violate their standard, the standard behavior that they that they do every day. So there was a research project several years ago that looked at um, trying to characterize your general behavior when you are on some company system, and if you do something that deviates from that, that sets off red flags, and then it sends people to go look at your machine or what you're doing. I would say this kind of addresses a symptom of a bigger problem. Uh, you, you can't really stop that in, a, I think, a clear way. The way you would do that, the way you would stop it, would essentially start treating all of your employees as potential threats, uh, which is really going to make people more unhappy, and I would say probably make them more likely to be, uh, to be exploited or, or be more willing to, to be one of these these insiders because you know their employers don't like them treat them terribly so why don't i take this million dollars from some shady person uh so i think the bigger issue is is again an economic one about you know you'd want to prevent people from being in a position where they are so uh financially uh bereft that they have to rely on some or that when some opportunity comes knocking for them to make a like a windfall by Mm doing this one thing of plugging a, th- a thumb drive into someone into your machine at work mm-hmm. one day uh, it does raise that. yeah it does raise an interesting question how many of these really large ransomware events may have actually been the result of, of someone because surely Tesla is not the only company who you know had their employees bribed and it's, it's just sure. the one where the person was brave enough to kind of stand up and report it um, there was there was a a suspicion that when Sony was breached, if you remember after the movie, The Interview, um, there was a lot of initial suspicion that there was an insider. Um, and I remember that because Sony had just finished a cybersecurity audit. They had the best defenses. They really didn't think that there was, there was 
uh, potential that it could have actually come from an external, you know, source. Right. Now, um, I don't know if that's just hubris, uh, but, uh, you know, and they just, it, it was an easy, convenient thing to say, oh, it had to have been an insider. But I, I do remember that, uh, you know, that there was a very, very much concern that there could have been uh, someone from North Korea that had infiltrated a, a U.S. Uh, organization. Um, but yeah, to your point, it's been happening for a long time. And to your point, this is a very difficult problem to solve. Yeah. Um, the, the other one, uh, just to kind of make sure we, we cover the gamut of extremely hard cybersecurity problems today, I, I, I want to make sure that we, we cover the other really big one here, Dr. Button, is supply chain software. So we right. just saw over the last couple of weeks, actually July 4th weekend, uh, a lot of cybersecurity professionals had to work through the July 4th holiday because Kaseya um, had a zero-day vulnerability in their software, mm -hmm. which led to... Uh, as far as I know, thousands of companies got ransomed over a weekend. From oh. what I'm understanding, it's the largest ransomware attack of all time. Wow. It's five times larger than the 2017 WannaCry attack. And what fundamentally happened is a breach of trust. People trusted the Kaseya software. Right. And the Kaseya software... Uh, the update agent on the machine was infiltrated uh, by the attacker. The attacker basically used the update process to drop a file, and then that file um, obviously, you know, eventually caused the system to get ransomed. So if you look at your machine today, doctor, you have lots of software you trust. Let's say you have a Lenovo laptop. You have a you have a touchpad driver from Synaptics. You have a video driver from NVIDIA. And all these driver software have auto update features. They're reaching out to their home company. And attackers have basically figured out that if we just attack this, this one company, we can attack thousands of, of victims, right? So the payoff for them is much greater. And these companies traditionally did not really focus on cybersecurity uh, right. in an in a, in a, in a important enough way. So supply chain attack seems to be something that is outside the control of the human, right? It's not, it's not strictly a cyber safety issue because there's really nothing that the human could do because you have to really allow your system to get updated, right? You right. have to have a certain level of trust. But now what we're seeing with these, with these supply chain attacks is it's exposing that not only is it a, you know, a, a big problem, but we really don't have tech today to uh, prevent this from happening. Um, I'm not aware of a solution today that can actually, you know, stop this. So, um, again, I, I don't know if you have an answer, but I'd love your thoughts on this problem. And does does um, is there anything you're aware of from the research side that that might help um, both private and, and government with this issue? Yeah. So, the supply chain risk has been a risk, uh, certainly for nation state level espionage throughout the Cold War. Uh, and then, so the government is well aware of this problem. Is that when you are buying or sourcing parts for your tank, uh, and many of them are manufactured in China because that's where a lot of the semiconductor and, and microprocessors are built, how do you deal with that security uh, issue? One is you build your own uh, integrated circuitry and, and microprocessors on, on uh, domestic soil, but that's just astronomically expensive. Uh, so it's all about a risk management approach. About 10 years ago, we, uh, my company actually did a project on this to try and characterize the um, 
firmware that came with hardware that you would buy. So you buy a new uh, network card. How do you know that there's not some piece of, of malware embedded in the firmware on this, on this device? Because it's going to get loaded up early on in your system. Uh, ultimately, though, it's a root of trust problem, I think. Where is the root of trust? And you have to make that decision somewhere and know that well, any root of trust uh, decision that you make is going to come with risks involved. interesting you know it's really it's hard it's hard not to touch on the political aspects of this because it almost becomes necessary to embrace almost a nationalistic perspective on sourcing your equipment because even though you know you may not have a political motivation to kind of be america first per se it almost becomes inevitable if you don't trust the foreign adversary that you're buying your circuitry from right. um right so it's like regardless of the political aspects of it it almost becomes a survival issue otherwise you're just going to get owned right um yeah very interesting problem as well so these are these are very interesting challenges today um i'd love to know uh you know specifically your thoughts on um <coughs> fishing so the the fishing challenge with humans is how 90 percent of companies are getting breached today Right. So what are some really what's some really practical if we have business owners and CEOs and, and you know, essentially buyers listening today, um, uh, what are some solutions uh, that people should be looking for, in your opinion? Um, or, or is this really do we just need to really focus on employee training to, uh, you know, cyber safety? So um, kind of close this out there on this topic of phishing. Really appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, I think a, a lot of this is not going to be solved from the top down because uh, if you want to instill good habits among your among your employees, you know, that's going to have to come from the employee, either through some training or some some kind of opportunity to help them be better. Because ultimately, the ha like the habits or the or the things that you want to pay attention to, like if you get an email from your bank or you get an email from somebody, uh, don't click anything in the link or call one of those numbers. Go to the website, find the the number on the from the website, and call whoever is sending you this email, or who pretends to send, be sending you this email call from the website or do something like that. Don't follow anything that comes into your email. Uh, those kinds of questions are not things that you can mandate down from policy because uh, policy compliance is going to be a big problem there. You have to understand, you have to communicate to the employee why this is important, not just, and not pitch it just like this isn't about just protecting us, the company. It's about giving you habits that will help protect you outside of this. I think that's probably the best the best way to get at this problem is demonstrate that it's not just about protecting the company. It's about protecting the the employees themselves. Excellent, excellent. Well, I definitely want to thank you for your time today. This has been a really fascinating conversation. We'd love to have you back on the show again, uh, actually, if you'd oh, love yeah. to come back on sometime. Yeah, it'd be an absolute pleasure because there's all kinds of stuff that we didn't talk about in terms of exploitation <laughs> right. and social media and how people are influenced and what pro uh, what platforms are doing to try and protect their users. All that stuff we didn't even get to that are core cyber safety questions as well. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, there's way more to talk about. I'd love to come back. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do another one purely on those issues. That's fascinating to us, and I know a lot of our listeners oh, yeah. too. So, again, uh, thank you, thank you so much, Dr. Button, for your time today. Absolutely, yeah, thank, thank you very much, you. guys.